Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. So welcome to episode 12 today. This is what I'll call a special lesson as we've just talked about the first presidency. I want to talk about the role of the living prophet, the president of the church. And maybe one of the great ways to do that is just to talk about our own present current prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. So I'd like to share a story or two about our prophet's life. In 2007, the late Joseph B. Worthland locked his knees while delivering a conference address. And as he spoke, he grew increasingly weak. Now you could YouTube this and you could watch it, but if you'll remember, for those who saw it, Elder Worthland was just shaking. In fact, his son, Joseph Worthland Jr., remembers leaving his seat at the conference center to go up to help his father, only to see President Nelson quickly move to his father's side at the pulpit. President Nelson put one hand on the apostle's shoulder and grabbed his belt with the other and basically stabilized and comforted Elder Worthland during his talk. And because of that lifting and stabilizing effort of of President Nelson, Elder Worthland was able to complete his address. I love that. Now, to me, that's not really a story about, oh, President Nelson's a doctor And obviously, Elder Worthland was having some medical episode. I view it very differently. What some of you may not know is that that in the early 1960s, in the Bonneville stake, Joseph E. Worthland served as a member of the High Council on that stake. And so did Russell M. Nelson. In 1964, when Russell M. Nelson was called to be the president of the Bonneville stake, who did he call to be one of his counselors? Joseph B. Worthland. And then in 1971, when President Nelson was called to be the General Church Sunday School Superintendent, who did he call as one of his counselors? Joseph B. Worthland. Or in other words, these men had been friends for almost half a century. And that was a story really about one friend helping another, in my mind, not so much a doctor helping maybe a patient, so to speak. Now, keep in mind that President Nelson was called in about 2008, in 2018, and so some of the experiences I'm going to share with you really quickly um, certainly were ongoing at that time, but maybe now that President Nelson is approaching at 100 years of age, that he's probably not doing some of these things. For, for instance, for a long time, up until just several years ago, not only would he use a snowblower, but he would also... Uh, plow the driveways of his neighbors. Uh, When Elder Ballard had open heart surgery in 1995, when he awoke, there was President Nelson, Elder Nelson at the time, his colleague in the Quorum of the Twelve, who stood right next to the surgeon through the entire surgery. By the way, talk about nerve-wracking if you're the surgeon. When Elder Robert D. Hales had open heart surgery 20 years ago, it was President Nelson who stood also next to the doctor who operated. It was also touching that when Elder Hales passed away, his quorum president, Russell M. Nelson, was there. In fact, Elder Neil Anderson described that experience in General Conference. He wrote that he said this, How kind of the Lord to impress upon President Russell M. Nelson right at the end of this morning's session to quickly leave the building, skip his lunch, and hurry to the bedside of Elder Hales, where he could arrive and be there, his quorum president, with his angelic Mary Hales, as Elder Hales graduated from mortality. President Nelson is attentive. Elder Holland remembers receiving a blessing from President Nelson before he underwent surgery. I was moved to tears under his hands, Elder Holland said. That's what came through, and it was not Dr. Nelson who would have known anything and everything about whatever was going on with a few bones bones and joints. It was Elder Nelson. It was Apostle Nelson. It was a prophet, seer, and revelator Nelson who gave that blessing. And the language of that blessing, Elder Holland said, wasn't a medical opinion, 
It was faith. Well, I love that our prophet is in such wonderful physical health for someone of his age. Now, we know that's changing once again as he becomes older, but up until just a few years ago, he still enjoyed gardening, mowing, doing yard work, even hauling the neighbor's garbage cans out from the curb. Uh, even before that, but still in his 90s, he, he could snow ski all day long. And, he, and uh, Elder Zwick, Craig Zwick, mentioned in an interview that President Nelson is still skiing on black diamond ski runs and scares me to death. He could ski with the best of them, that's for sure. Talk about someone who doesn't look or act like he's 93, Elder Holland said. Now, once again, if this was a few years ago. No one talks around here about age or how old we feel or how creaky our bones are. With boundless energy, some say he's never even taken a sick day. President Nelson descends the circular stairway after meeting in the upper room of the temple with other church leaders every Thursday. I always try to keep up with him, and I can't do it. This is what President Oak said. I grab hold of the banister to balance, and I skip along as well as I can. In fact, Elder Holland said that President Nelson bounds two stairs at a time. He's just in wonderful, awesome physical condition. Now let's transition this discussion more into some key doctrines when it comes to following prophets. This is from Elder James E. Faust years ago, but he said, I do not believe that members of this church can be in full harmony with the Savior without sustaining his living prophet on the earth, the president of the church. And if we do not sustain the living prophet, whoever he may be, we die spiritually. And we know that there are members of the church out there right now that are struggling and lack testimony of living prophets. But there are great ways to gain a testimony that we do have prophet seers and revelators among us and for me, one of the easiest is to read and study their words. Now, here's Elder Maxwell, Elder Neil A. Maxwell from years ago. But he said, make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters, in the months and years ahead, events will require each member of each member that he or she decide whether or not he or she will follow the first presidency. Members will find it more difficult to halt, hesitate, stumble, or falter longer between two opinions. In short, brothers and sisters, not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ includes not being ashamed of the prophets of Jesus Christ. Now, I stand before you today by way of testimony to say I am not ashamed of the gospel, but I'm certainly not ashamed of our living prophets. In fact, just the opposite. I am so grateful that we have living prophets today, and I am honored and feel greatly blessed. I could not imagine how we would navigate our way through this world of chaos and uncertainty and commotion without living prophets to mark the way. Now, this is from President Kimball. He said, Holy prophets have not only refused to follow erroneous human trends, but, but have pointed out these errors. And so often the prophets have been rejected because they first rejected the wrong ways of their own society. And now, by the way, President Kimball made this comment in 1978. Think of how relevant it is today. Prophets have a way of jarring the carnal mind, he continues. It is because of their love and integrity that they cannot modify the Lord's message really to make people feel comfortable. They are too kind to be so cruel. And I am grateful that prophets do not crave popularity. Now, Robert Millett, who was once the dean of religion at BYU, wrote once in one of his books that tragically what too many people want the prophets to do is either remain silent or see to it that they are in complete accord with the shifting sands of a secular society. And we see that right in front of our eyes today. We see that, we see manifestations of those trends of people wanting prophets to agree with them. And I love what someone shared with me one time where they said, boy, if the prophets, seers, and revelators are aligning themselves with me, that's a scary thought. And I would agree. I don't want them to align themselves with my kooky thoughts. I want them to continue to get their revelation, to receive their revelation from the Lord himself. Let me refer you to another talk that President Nelson gave in this case, The Love and Laws of God 
On September the 17th, 2019, it was a BYU devotional. President Nelson said this, Sometimes we as leaders of the church are criticized for holding firm to the laws of God, defending the Savior's doctrine, and resisting the social pressures of our day. But our commission as ordained apostles is to go into all the world and preach His gospel unto every creature. And that means we are commanded to teach the truth. In doing so, he said, Sometimes we are accused of being uncaring as we teach the Father's requirements for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. But wouldn't it be far more uncaring for us not to tell the truth, not to teach what God has revealed? It is precisely because we do care deeply about all of God's children that we proclaim His truth. We may not always tell people what they want to hear. Prophets are rarely popular, but we will always teach the truth. And I love that. And I am grateful that our living prophets teach the truth. And I know that for some that's difficult because they preach and teach against modern trends of the day. And uh, that's tough for some people. I understand that. But our prophets and apostles are always going to face the Lord. They don't face the world. Now, on another thought. Here we go. And it's just a, a theme that I'd like to introduce in this podcast as we talk about prophets, seers, and revelators. It's a quote from President Kimball. And he said that we all need heroes to honor and admire. We need people after whom we can pattern our lives. For Christ is the chiefest of these. Christ is our pattern, our guide, our prototype, and our friend. We seek to be like him so that we can always be with him. In a lesser degree, the apostles and prophets who have lived as Christ lived also become examples to us. You know, it's been my experience for the last 13 years as I've studied in depth the lives of our current prophets, seers, and revelators, that I've come to know that they're great humans, that they're incredible neighbors and servants, that they're wonderful, strong husbands, fathers, and grandfathers. And every one of them are the type of person that I hope to be. And they do help point me to the Savior. And I'm so grateful for that. Now shifting gears just a little bit again is I want to share with you some key principles about prophets from the scriptures. In fact, really from one particular story in the Old Testament that many of you are familiar with. It's First Kings. And I wish we had time to talk about the entire chapter. It's fantastic, as many of you know. But there are some principles in the first five or six verses that I think really help us understand the role of a prophet. Elijah, in verse 1, the Tishbite, said unto Ahab, that as the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew or rain these years, but according to my word. Now, what's the principle? Let's identify it here. There probably are several, but certainly prophets prophesy. Another one is, do prophets have power over the elements? There is evidence that yes, they do. And Elijah is prophesying that a famine would come. Now, the Lord's going to direct that. Verse 2, you may think it's worth skipping, but no, there's too much here. It says, and the word of the Lord came unto him, saying... And now that sets us up for verse 3. But no, no, let's not skip verse 2. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Another principle. The Lord speaks to his prophets. There's no question about that. Otherwise, why have prophets, right? If the Lord doesn't speak to them. But then the Lord gives a directive in verse 3. Get thee hence and turn thee eastward and hide thyself in the brook Cherith. That is before Jordan. Now, I'm going to say, okay, principle, let's identify one. At least here's one, and maybe there's more. But the Lord gives directives. He gives directions. He gives counsel. He gives warnings to his prophets. And then, of course, they in turn share with us what those warnings or challenges or invitations are. Verse 4, And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, as I have commanded ravens to feed thee there. Now, we could say there's a principle here, once again, of receiving directions, uh, having the Lord speak to us, but there's another idea that I really like, and that is this, that the Lord sustains his living prophets. Thou shalt drink of the brook, 
Ravens will come and feed you there. I am going to take care of you, the Lord says to Elijah. And then verse 5. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and dwelt at the brook Cherith. In other words, prophets follow directions. Not only do prophets follow prophets, but they follow the Lord. And that's uh, so comforting, and it should be to all of us. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning. So bread and meat in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening. And he drank from the brook. So there's that idea, once again, of sustainment, that the Lord is going to sustain and take care of his prophets. And then to verse 7, And it came to pass after a while the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. All right, do you remember verse 1? Not going to be dew nor rain these years. Verse 7, brook dries up, prophets prophesy, and their prophecies come to pass. Now, there's much more, right? I mean, we know that in verses 9 through 16 or 17, it's one of the great stories in all the scriptures about Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. And once again, a great invitation. What's the invitation? He gives the widow woman an invitation to feed him, and that if she does, that she would be greatly blessed, and she is. She trusts in the prophet. She takes care of him, and as she takes care of him, her own life is greatly blessed and magnified. It's incredible. It's a wonderful story. Now, once again, we don't have time to sit there and talk about that for for three days, but it's great stuff. Now, let's go into some more doctrines on prophets and what a prophet is. A true prophet, Elder McConkie said, in Mortal Messiah, he said, A true prophet is one who has the testimony of Jesus, one who knows by personal revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, and that he was to be or has been crucified for the sins of the world, one to whom God speaks and who recognizes the still small voice of the Spirit. A true prophet is one who holds the holy priesthood, who is a legal administrator, who has power and authority from God to represent him on earth. A true prophet is a teacher of righteousness to whom the truths of the gospel have been revealed and who presents them to his fellow men so they can become heirs of salvation in the highest heaven. A true prophet is a witness, a living witness, one who knows, one who testifies. Such a one, if need be, foretells the future and reveals to men what the Lord reveals to him. I love that. That is what a prophet is. Now, a seer. Several of our prophets have spoken about what it means to be a seer. This is from Orson F. Whitney. He said, a seer is greater than a prophet. We're quoting Mosiah 8, 15. One may be a prophet without being a seer, but a seer is essentially a prophet, if by prophet is meant not only a spokesman, but likewise a foreteller. Joseph Smith was a, both a prophet and seer. A seer is one who sees. But it is not the ordinary sight that is meant. The seeric gift is a supernatural endowment. That's from Orson F. Whitney. And by the way, just my opinion, but when we talk about a seer, it's not just foretelling. It's not just seeing into the future. But it's seeing things with a different perspective. It's seeing things with a new set of eyes. It's unlocking the scriptures to us. It's seeing events of the world in a different way. Now here's Elder John A. Widsow from Evidences and Reconciliations. A seer is one who sees with spiritual eyes. He perceives the meaning of that which seems obscure to others. Therefore, he is an interpreter and a clarifier of eternal truth. In short, he is one who sees, one who walks in the Lord's light with open eyes. And there's that idea that I was just sharing about. Even the way that they interpret and share scriptures with us is is extraordinary. And then a revelator, back to John A. Widso. A revelator makes known with the Lord's help something before unknown. It may be a new or forgotten truth or a new or forgotten application of known truth to man's need. Always the revelator deals with truth, certain truth, and always it comes with a divine stamp of approval. Revelation may be received in various ways, but it always presupposes that the revelator has so lived and conducted himself as to be in tune or harmony with the divine spirit of revelation, the spirit of truth, and therefore capable of receiving divine messages. Oh, I love that. Now here's another idea, 
And the idea is centers around priesthood keys. Now we know that the priesthood is the power and authority of God that's delegated to man. But priesthood keys are the right to direct the use of that power. Now I'm quoting a conference talk from Elder Merrill J. Bateman. The president of the church holds the keys necessary for governing the entire church. His counselors in the first presidency and the quorum of the twelve apostles also hold the keys of the kingdom and operate under the president's direction. Stake presidents, bishops, temple, mission, and quorum presidents are also given keys to guide the church and their jurisdiction. Their counselors do not hold keys but receive delegated authority by calling and assignment. When a man is ordained to the apostleship, President Gordon B. Hinckley said, and set apart to be a member of the Council of the Twelve, he is given the keys of the priesthood of God. Each of the fifteen living men so ordained holds these keys. However, only the president of the church has the right to exercise them in their fullness. Now time out just for a second. I think what President Hinckley is reminding us of is that all of the apostles hold all of the keys all of the same keys as the first presidency hold. However, unless you are the living prophet on the earth, you those keys lie dormant. And then President Hinckley continues, he may, that's the prophet, delegate the exercise of various keys to one or more of his brethren. Each has the keys, but is authorized to use them only to the degree granted him by the prophet of the Lord. Now, we know that keys are something that have been talked about in Scripture in different places. Although, I would suggest that many people of different denominations who may read verses in Matthew may not be quite sure what these, uh, this, this discussion about keys is really all about. So, first, a reminder from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to, let's say, 19. This is the great story of Jesus and the apostles. And when Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? Some say that you're John the Baptist, others say Elias, others Jeremiah. But Jesus says, whom say ye that I am? And Peter answers and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee by my Father which is in heaven, for thou art Peter, and upon this rock, this rock of revelation, will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in verse 19, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever shall be bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That key sounds like a sealing key, a key with sealing power. In Matthew chapter 18 verse 18 we have mention again of keys in this case same thing whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven loosed on earth loosed in heaven now elder mcconkie said the keys of the priesthood are the right and power of presidency they are the directing controlling and governing power those who hold them are empowered to direct the manner in which others use their priesthood boy that's so so incredible. It's interesting that in the Doctrine and Covenants there are there are mention of all kinds of different keys. And section thirteen, the keys of the administering or the ministering of angels, and of baptism and repentance. And section eighty four, the keys of gathering. And section one ten and one twelve, sealing keys. It's really interesting. President Oaks mentioned this in a general conference talk in two thousand fourteen that the President Kimball reminded us that there are other priesthood keys that have been not given to man on the earth, and those include the keys of creation and resurrection. So there are keys that our apostles and prophets, uh, that, they, that they don't hold at this time, that haven't been given to them yet. But could you imagine the power of holding the key of creation or the key of resurrection? Wow. It would be dangerous if I held the key of resurrection i just don't think i'd let anyone around me ever die and that's a good reason uh, for me not getting in the way of the lord's plan there so the difference between keys and authority and you know i always use this example in my classes but obviously if uh, if a young man met a friend another young man 
on the campus who was not a member of the church, he couldn't say, you know what, let's just go to the Provo River today and baptize you. There, there has to be keys involved in that, right? And so he would need to receive permission from a mission president or a bishop to uh, authorize that ordinance. And of course, most bishops or mission presidents wouldn't authorize that ordinance unless that person has been taught all the discussion discussions, the missionary lessons. They've made commitments. What I've learned is that keys keep order in the kingdom. I remember as a bishop, it wasn't uh, it wasn't unusual, especially in the summertime, to have members of my ward ask me if they could bless the sacrament on their campout or on their family trip or on their vacation. And there's great wisdom in following the handbook. You know, and the handbook tells us that if there's a local meeting place where we can take the sacrament, that that's what we really should do. And uh, But once again, it, I learned that those keys help keep order in the kingdom and they eliminate chaos. Now, the way that I'd like to conclude, and I say that in a little bit facetious way because this is a long list, but 14 Fundamentals in Following the Prophet, a landmark address given by President Ezra Taft Benson on the BYU campus. And I just want to go through these 14 fundamentals of following the prophet. Number one, the prophet is the only man on earth who speaks for the Lord in everything. Number two, the living prophet is more vital to us than the standard works. Obviously, the standard works, the scriptures, don't have a lot of information about social media or about some of the issues of our day that we struggle with. We need the words of those living prophets. Number three, the living prophet is more important to us than a dead prophet. We love our dead prophets, right? We love those prophets who have gone before us. But the words of the living prophet would trump the words of a dead prophet. I'll give you an example. In the early 1900s, in the book Gospel Doctrine, President Joseph F. Smith made it very clear that no one should ever get in debt or borrow money for a home. Well, that was probably great counsel in 1908 or whenever it was given, when the average cost of a home was, you know, $1,500 or whatever. Today, the way our economy has changed and housing structure you know, if you didn't borrow money to to buy a home, especially just in the beginning part of your married life or your or your adult life, that would be really hard to do. <laughs> anyway, number four, the prophet will never lead the church astray. Now we've heard that you know that kind of message over and over again, and it's true. In fact, President Benson once said that of all mortal men, we should keep our eyes most firmly fixed on the captain the prophet, the seer, and the revelator, and the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is the man who stands closest to the fountain of living waters. Now, a couple interesting stories. One, years ago in my counseling practice in the Dallas area, I saw a family, and one of the daughters in the family had a fear of flying. And her mother came up with what I thought was some, some great wisdom, some great counsel, The mother said to her daughter, here's what I do. Whenever you're on the plane and you hit turbulence or you come to these moments on the the plane that are just difficult for you to deal with, always look at the flight crew. And she said, if the flight crew is panicked, if uh, (laughs) if they're upset, if they're yelling and screaming, then there's probably a really great reason why you should you should yell and scream and be panicked yourself. But if you're going through that turbulence and those flight attendants are just talking to each other, conversing, drinking their drinks, uh, you probably could relax a little bit. I think the same applies to our living prophets, right? We just watch them. We keep our eye firmly fixed on the captain. Is the captain panicking? Is the captain yelling, the sky is falling? Is he telling all of us to hide under our mattress or in some bunker somewhere? No. Our prophets are living life to the fullest. And once again, now this story I'm a little bit nervous to share, but I think it comes from quite a reliable source. It came from a member of the Deseret Book Board, and it went something like this. I hope this is as accurate as as it can be since it's not in print. But it was 2008, 2009. The economy was crashing. We were in a great recession. Many people were panicked. There was an election that year, and it was just a a year of some chaos and uncertainty. And 
Sherry Dew came to the church office building, into the office of President Monson, to interview him for some kind of story. And there were some great things that came out of that, some great messages that came out of that experience. One sister Dew said that, you know, President Monson had all the time in the world for her, that he wasn't a clock watcher at all, that however, whatever time she wanted to take, he was willing to take it. But the key is, is that when she walked in, President Monson with his office staff, they were dancing to the music to La Cucaracha. And as Sherry Dew walked in, President Monson said, Sherry, you should do it with us. This is so fun. And they were all just dancing. And I just thought, you know what? While the world is falling apart and our prophets are dancing, I'm going to go to bed and sleep like a baby tonight, just knowing that. I, I love that experience. This is from President Harold B. Lee. He says, I bear you my solemn witness that we have a living prophet, seer, and revelator. We are not dependent upon the revelations given in the past. We have a mouthpiece to whom God is revealing his mind and will right now. God will never permit him to lead us astray. As has been said, God would remove us out of our place if we should attempt to do it. You do not have do not have concern. Let the management and government of God then be with the Lord. Do not try to find fault with the management and affairs that pertain to him alone and by revelation through his prophet. This is from, I think, President Marion G. Romney from years ago, but he said that I remember years ago when I was a bishop, I had President Heber J. Grant talk to our ward. Can you imagine those days when the church was small enough that you could just have the president of the church come and speak to your ward? After the meeting, I drove him home, and standing by me, he put his arms over my shoulder and said, My boy, you always keep your eye on the president of the church, and if he ever tells you to do anything and it's wrong, and you do it, the Lord will bless you for it. Then with a twinkle in his eye, he said, But you don't need to worry. The Lord will never let his mouthpiece lead the people astray. That was all number four. Number five, the prophet is not required to have any particular earthly training or credentials to speak on any subject or to act on any matter at any time. Although I will tell you this, that many years ago, my father-in-law had the opportunity to pick up President Hinckley at a private airport in the Houston area, drive him around, and find the site for the Houston Temple. And one of the things that my father-in-law said was that he could not believe how much President Hinckley seemed to know just about everything. And here my father had been in the real estate business for years and walked away saying that I think President Hinckley knew much more than I did about real estate, about construction. It was incredible. Number six, the prophet doesn't have to say, thus saith the Lord, Lord to give a scripture. His words are enough. Number seven, the prophet tells us what we need to know, not always what we want to know. That's a key for our day. The patriarch Joseph F. Smith, Smith of that statement said this, It has never been the business of a prophet of God to tell the people what they want to hear. It is the business of a prophet, and I imagine it's a very unpleasant business sometimes, to tell the people what the Lord wants them to know and do. And we who hold the priesthood should take the church seriously enough to be obedient. Number eight, the prophet is not limited by men's reasoning. Number nine, the prophet can receive revelation on any matter, temporal and spiritual. Some of you church historians may remember this was one of the uh, problems in Kirtland where many members of the church did not want Joseph Smith giving them counsel on temporal affairs. Joseph, you just stay with the spiritual, we'll handle, handle the temporal. I want you to know by way of testimony how grateful I am that our prophets are involved with us temporally that they teach us about provident living, about our mental health, about how to prepare for emergencies and disasters, about how to prepare financially. I treasure those words. Number 10, the prophet may be involved in civic matters. Some people don't like that, but they may be. Number 11, the two groups who have the greatest difficulty in following the prophet are the proud who are learned and the proud who are rich. Number 12, the prophet will not necessarily be popular with the world or the worldly, and we know that they're not. Number 13, the prophet and his counselors make up the first presidency, the highest quorum in the church. Yes, the first presidency is a quorum. 
And number 14, the prophet and his presidency, the living prophet and the first presidency, follow them and be blessed, reject them, and suffer the consequences. Now, there's a great story that was told by President Harold B. Lee that in the early days of the church in Kirtland, there were some of the leading brethren in the presiding councils of the church that met secretly and tried to scheme as how they could get rid of Joseph Smith. They made the huge mistake of inviting Brigham Young to one of these secret meetings. You don't invite Brigham Young to that meeting, everyone. He's one of Joseph's most loyal followers. Brigham Young rebuked them after he had heard the purpose of their meeting, and this is part of what he said. You cannot destroy the appointment of a prophet of God, but you can cut the thread that binds you to the prophet of God and sink yourselves to hell. Now, this podcast is entitled Stand By My Servants. It comes from a a verse in Doctrine and Covenants, section 6. But Brigham Young fit that that counsel to the T. Stand by my servant, Joseph Smith. I love this statement from Elder Joseph F. Merrill, given many years ago. Do the people of the church want a safe guide to what is well for them to do? It is this. Keep in harmony with the presidency of the church. Accept and follow the teachings and advice of the president. At every conference, we raise our hands to sustain the president as prophet, seer, and revelator. Is it consistent to do this and then to go contrary to his advice? Is anyone so simple as to believe he is serving the Lord when he opposes the president? Oh, I love that. Now, during the course of my lifetime, there have often been critics out there who have not agreed with having older men as presidents of the church. This story is wonderful and I share it with you. When President David O. McKay died on January the 18th, 1970, the president of the Council of the Twelve, or the Quorum of the Twelve, President Joseph Fielding Smith, was called to be the new prophet of the Lord. Elder, Elder Harold B. Lee was next senior apostle to President Smith and was called a few days later to serve with President Smith as the first counselor in the new first presidency. Elder Lee then shared an experience that happened to him during these two days when the, re- when the reorganization of the first presidency was being considered. One of the church brethren approached Elder Lee. One of the church brethren. There you go. Is it correct what I have heard that they're going to make Joseph Fielding Smith the president of the church. This wasn't a good question to ask of Elder Lee at that time. Elder Lee answered politely and confirmed that he thought that would be the case. But the man persisted and said, but how can that be? I can't believe that. How can we sustain Joseph Fielding Smith? He's 93 years old. He's so old, I'm not sure he's even with it. The man continued developing his point. How could a man of that age, his body weak and worn, still direct the church? Presently listened for a while, but his sharp mind was spinning, and he responded, My good brother, do you know what it takes to be a prophet of the Lord? The man said, Well, I guess I really don't know exactly. Well, Elder Lee said, What do you think it would take? The fellow said, Well, I suppose you'd have to know a lot about genealogy or family history, the missionary program of the church and all the missionaries and what they're doing and how to supervise them. He would need to know about the primary and the Relief Society, the building and construction programs. He named quite a few other major functions of the church. After listening to all of that for a while, President Lee then said, you are dead wrong. And only President Lee could say it that way. And then he said this, shall I tell you what it takes to be a prophet? There's only one capacity, just one. And that is to be able to hear the voice of the Lord. That's all. That's all he's got to do. The rest of us can do the work. He just has to do that one function, to hear the Lord's voice. Do you suppose that this great living apostle, a man who has been sustained as a prophet for six decades, longer than any other man on the earth, might be able to do that? And I think that good brother got the point. And now as we consider our own prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, who on September the 9th of 2023 will be 99 years old. And on September the 9th of 2024, he will be 100 years old. We've never had that happen in the history of the church. But once again, a reminder that all President Nelson has to do is hear the Lord's voice. That's it. 
He has the rest of us to do his work. Now here's Elder M. Russell Ballard. He said, knowing that the prophet is God's prophet on earth endows us with a responsibility. When we hear the counsel of the Lord expressed through the words of the president of the church, our response should be positive and prompt. History has shown that there is safety, peace, prosperity, and happiness in responding to prophetic counsel as did Nephi of old. I will go and do the things which the Lord has commanded. And then Elder Ballard concluded, study his words and strive to obey them. They are true and they come from God. Many years ago, President Ezra Taft Benson gave us a great litmus test. He said, a good way to measure your standing with the Lord is to see how you feel about and act upon the inspired words of his earthly representative, the prophet and president. The inspired words of the president are not to be trifled with, he said. And I I agree. Now, just a reminder that our prophets aren't perfect. They've never professed perfection. They know that they're fallible. They're ordinary men who are doing their very best. From Elder Packer once, he said, This we know, that there are councils and counselors and quorums to counterbalance the foibles and frailties of man. The Lord organized his church to provide for mortal men to work as mortal men. And yet he assured that the spirit of revelation would guide in all that we do in his name. Revelation continues with us today. The promptings of the Spirit, the dreams, the visions, and the visitations and the ministering of angels are all with us now. And the still small voice, the Holy Ghost, is a lamp unto our feet and a guide unto our path. I love that. Yes, they're not perfect, but the Spirit is with them and the Spirit is giving them guidance. I love something Joseph Smith said many years ago, that I love a man better who swears a stream as long as my arm yet deals justice to his neighbors and mercifully deals his substance to the poor than the smooth-faced hypocrite. I do not want you to think that I am very righteous, for I am not. There was only one good man, and his name was Jesus. Now, I think Joseph is playing himself down quite a bit there in that statement, but I think he just wants us to know that I've never, I've never ever professed perfection. Here's one of my favorite stories during the Nauvoo era. Joseph had a great opportunity, Joseph Smith, to blend some humor with true principle. He dressed up in ragged clothes, got on a horse, and rode down to meet a group of saints who had just landed on the dock from England. The son of Edwin Rushton shared this account. He said father was very anxious to find the members of his family already established there, parentheses in Nauvoo, and hurried towards the town to search for them. He had gone only a short distance when he met a man riding a beautiful black horse. The man accosted him, saying, Hey, bub, is that a company of Mormons just landed? In much surprise, father said, Yes, sir. Are you a Mormon? The stranger asked. Yes, sir, father again answered. What do you know about old Joe Smith? The stranger asked. I know that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, said my father. And then Joseph said, I suppose you're looking for an old man with a long gray beard. What would you think if I told you that I was Joseph Smith? If you're Joseph Smith, my father said, I know that you're a prophet of God. And then in a gentle voice, the man explained, I am Joseph Smith. I came to meet those people dressed as I am in rough clothes and speaking in this manner to see if their faith is strong enough to stand the things they must meet. And if not, they should turn back. That was Father's introduction to the prophet. Oh, I love that story from Edward Rushton, related by his son. Now, I've heard other variations of that same story where Joseph said, I just want people to know that if they're expecting perfection in me, that I should be able to expect perfection in them. And of course, he wasn't going to expect perfection in anyone. Here's another thought to consider as we talk about living prophets. Our presidents of the church, our prophets, are men who have been tried, men who have been challenged, men who have gone through rigorous and difficult experiences in their life. We think of our own prophet, President Nelson, who has lost his wife, who has lost two of his daughters to cancer. Um, And those are just the trials that we're aware of. This is from Orson Hyde. He said, When an individual is ordained and appointed to lead the people, 
He has passed through tribulations and trials and has proven himself before God and before his people that he is worthy of the situation which he holds. A person that has not been tried, that has not been proved himself before God and before his people and before the councils of the Most High is not going to step in to lead the church and the people of God. Oh, I, I, I really appreciate that. How about this one from George Q. Cannon? That God has chosen the prophet to stand where he does, not you or me. And he knows every secret thought of men's hearts. His all-piercing eye has penetrated the innermost recesses of his heart. And he has seen all there is about him, inside and out. He knows him thoroughly because he created him. He knew his past history. He knows his present history. And knowing this, he has chosen him. What can we do better than to show respect to our God by listening to his servant, by treating him with reverence, asking his counsel, and seeking for his guidance? Our prophets have been tried. They have gone through some of the most challenging experiences that life has to offer. They have been winnowed. They have been refined. And the Lord now can use them to do this wonderful work. Let me conclude today with an experience <clears throat> that taught me a great lesson. Our family does live here in the Utah Valley area, and several years ago we were on Utah Lake in late July. We were in our daughter and son-in-law's boat enjoying a late Saturday afternoon of water skiing and just some good family time. But from the south end of that lake, of Utah Lake, you could just see these dark clouds coming in. I mean, it was literally just dark and black on the south end of that lake. Where we were, about in the middle of the lake, it was fine. It was sunny, and that day, the waves had been a little rough, and they were just starting to flatten out. We were just about a mile or two north of the, of the harbor, and uh, we felt it would be good with those clouds coming if we just started towards, towards the harbor. And so I did feel, though, that the storm was far enough away that we could still enjoy some last-minute skiing because now almost all the boats were off the lake, the water had been a little rough, as I mentioned, but it now had just, it was glass. It was perfect if you're a water skier. And I just thought, no big deal, storm's coming. I'll just ski back uh, towards the harbor. And as I got out there to ski on that last run, the rain just hit. And it was coming down so hard. You know, we hear people talk about coming down in buckets. But as I was being pulled behind a boat and that water was hitting my face, I couldn't even breathe. I mean, it was just so much water. I had to just let go of the boat. I had to let go of the rope and... And have them come back and get me. And soon I got back and I got back in the boat, and the intensity of that storm just increased. And pretty soon, we had massive waves crashing over the boat. I would guess waves three to five feet high, and they were just filling the boat with water. And just to give you an idea of how much water, the entire floor of that boat was covered, and eventually, about a foot deep, almost two feet deep of water, eventually filled the bottom of that boat in fact i remember we the vivid memory is still of of you know drink coolers floating inside of the boat that's how much water we had in there and with that much water at least with the motor going and you know we, we could troll through the these heavy heavy waves of course every time we hit a wave it just filled the the boat but eventually uh because of the position of the motor and the battery on that particular boat uh, the boat died, and so now there we are just sitting ducks outside, uh, out in the middle of that lake with huge waves just crashing over the top of us. I would say it was probably one of the most helpless feelings I've ever had of just not not being able to really do anything. I mean, when the boat doesn't move, you're just a victim to whatever happens out there. We called the Coast Guard for help. They didn't really respond. I even called uh, a few family members and said, hey, we are in trouble. I don't know what you can do, but notify someone because, you know, this is pretty scary. And once again, for me, here I was, a father, a grandfather, a husband with my wife, some of my, my adult children on the boat, some of their children. And I was really concerned. And I had read about boating incidences on Utah Lake when storms come up and some of those were pretty scary stories where people didn't survive. And so, anyway, it was quite intense. Uh, the water was now in the boat coming up to our knees. And uh, about 15 to 20 minutes of sheer horror. And the height of all that, finally we saw the Coast Guard boat coming out and coming towards us. 
And I thought, oh my gosh, thank you, thank you. This is going to be great. And they just drove right past us. And I remember thinking, what the heck? Here we had a boat full of women and children, and they just continued heading north on the lake. And we later found out that a boat a boat had actually capsized. And I think they drove past us thinking, hey, guys, at least you're, you're afloat, so you're good. So after about 20 minutes of sheer terror, and some of our children were actually convinced we were going to die that day, the wind and the waves began to calm down, and then it just became a light rain. And then maybe the funniest part of the story, that after all that chaos, having been out in the middle of the lake, by the time we were done being washed around by the wind and the waves, I looked up and noticed for the first time that we were about a, a hundred feet or so from the shore, that I hopped out of the boat, and it was literally up to my, you know, this is Utah Lake, so it was up to my waist, but but the motor was still dead, and we had no way to to do anything, really, other than just hold still and hope someone came by, and sure enough, not long after that, a pontoon boat, I'll still remember this, uh, full of Boy Scouts and their leaders came around the bend, and they came over and asked us if we needed a, a tow-in, and certainly we did. One month earlier, I was on the south end of Utah Lake, and this, a storm like that had blown in very quickly. This time, we didn't waste waste any time at all, and uh, I was able to get back safely to that harbor. But once again, every single wave that we hit, we just had water coming into the boat. And if you know anything about the harbor at Utah Lake, uh, it's it's really a big rock dike, so to speak. And so once you get into that harbor, you go from treacherous waves that are three and four feet tall crashing over your boat to smooth, placid water. And I remember turning into that harbor in that storm and just seeing all these boats just safely nestled in the harbor and the water was calm and smooth and we were behind these big rocks that formed a great barrier of protection. Well, it's a great lesson for all of us because we know that we're in a massive storm right now in this world. The world is crazy, and we're being pelted by wind and rains and waves like we've never seen before, and many feel overwhelmed. It's almost as if all of our boats are just full of hundreds of gallons of water. But I'm here to tell you that there is safety in the harbor if we could just get our boats there. And for me, that harbor represents many things. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the teachings of the Savior. It's his doctrines. It's our covenants. It's ordinances. It's scriptures. It's the temple. But today, as I think of it, it's it's the living prophets. The living prophets and their teachings form a safe harbor. And if we could get into that harbor and hold on tightly to those teachings— that no matter how chaotic the world is, no matter how crazy things become, we will always be safe as long as we listen to and heed the words of our living prophet. I am so grateful to live in a time and in a place where living prophets abound. And I share that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.